There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. We have a wonderful guest today. Now, when one thinks about public radio networks and classical musical music radio, one name comes to mind, and that name is Steve Robinson. It's difficult to imagine a highly successful radio station without a leader like Steve. Steve is well known for his unflagging energy, endless creativity, and a deep knowledge of classical music and radio operations. Steve has been creating, producing, and developing radio programs for 50 years that have been heard throughout the United States and around the world. He is, he is an example of someone who is a master of the critical skills of communications, production, and technology. When he was in Chicago, Steve spent 16 years at the helm of the great classical radio station, WFMT-FM, 98.7 on your dial. He retired from WFMT in 2016 and now lives in Boston where he is president and head cheese of a company he founded, New Media Productions. The company creates and produces podcasts, CDs, and provides consulting services to a variety of media clients. So welcome, Steve, to It's All About Skills. Charlie, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for that generous introduction. Well, it's a pleasure, Steve, to have you here. And to start, let's go back just a few years. Tell us where you grew up and what led you into the world of classical music and radio. Well, we're going to have to go back more than a few years for that, Charlie. But uh, <laughs> I grew up in Boston, a little suburb called Brookline. It's immediately west of Boston, about a mile from Fenway Park. And I started listening to classical music quite early. I remember it was in the fourth or fifth or sixth grade. And I did all my listening on the radio because in Boston in those days, we had four, count them, four classical music radio stations and I would listen to all of them. And so I really learned um, the basic repertoire, not from the standpoint of a musician, but just as a listener. So by the time I got into high school, I knew all the Beethoven symphonies, the Brahms symphonies and all of, the, all of what we call the standard repertoire, knowing in the sense of a listener. So I was inculcated into classical music but through the radio. And those two things, as you said in your intro, are still linked in my career, uh, uh, music and radio. So when you, when you went to college, uh, what did you major in and uh, what did you do? Well, I majored in music, uh, music education. I played the clarinet, the cello, the saxophone. I conducted and I was lousy at all of the above. Uh, <laughs> and when I was at 
at Boston University, suddenly about the end of the beginning of my junior year, the light went on in my head. Wait, of the four stations that I loved the most, the, the one I loved the most was WBUR. Wait a minute, Boston University Radio. Hey, wait a minute, I go here. So WBUR in those days, and it's true today, was never a student-run station. Nothing against student-run stations, but this was a professionally run, mostly classical music station at that time with some news. So I went down there and I got a job. I was a paid staff person part-time through a federal program. So I started in my junior year, 1967, uh, at my favorite radio station, WBUR, and I started doing a whole bunch of things. I, I, I tried to get on the air and I made a tape and my boss and I listened to the tape and we both said, no, no, this isn't gonna work because I was just so <laughs> nervous. So I started writing scripts and producing shows and then I tried it again and I wound up with an air shift, actually six. I was on Monday through Saturday from 10 to noon, each with a different show. And I would tape the ones during the, during the week and then uh, do the one on Saturday live. It was all, all different types of classical music shows. So by the time I graduated, I had a pretty good grounding. You did. You certainly did. And you learned, you started that at a very early age. And now when you, when you graduated, you started on your journey in radio and audio production. So tell us a little bit about that journey uh, up until the time uh, you took the helm at Chicago's classical music station, WFMT. Well, I, I had a good grounding in classical music, both as a lover of the music since the fifth or sixth grade, but then with a degree in music, even though I wasn't a very good musician, I still had a good grounding in music theory, music performance, and music uh, history. And so, when I would sit down with a composer, which later in my career I did with William Schumann, a very famous American composer, or Elliot Carter, a very well-known American composer, I was able to talk to them, not so much about you know, who your influence is, although I did ask those kinds of questions, I would open up the score. And I said to Bill Schumann, you have a tendency to write very florid lines in the strings and then little twittering lines in the woodwinds, and let's talk about that. So we talked about music, right from the score rather than anything else. And that put me on a different footing. Uh, and the same with musicians. I could talk to musicians and performers about things on a deeper level than your average radio announcer. So uh, those skills uh, really served me well uh, throughout my whole career. And even though I wasn't a very good musician myself, I would still follow the same path, learn as much about I could about music, whether I was good at it or not was irrelevant, and study radio and learn how to radio production, put the two together. And that's how I've really managed to keep this whole career going. You, well, you did a lot of things when you were there and uh, in between the time when you graduated from college and had those first jobs. Tell us a little bit about some things like uh, your program Shop Talk, uh, what you did at Vermont Public Radio and those sort of things. Well, I went into my boss, who I'm still in touch with after all these years. I mean, that was a long time ago, Will Lewis. Now, Will was an idea man, and I, I loved Will because he was always willing to try something different. I'll give you one example before we get into shop talk. He was approached by a guy by the name of Preston Webster. Preston was an African-American broadcaster, and he felt that there was no real outlet uh, in Boston, either a newspaper, TV show, or radio show for the Black community. So Preston proposed something called The Drum. The drum ended up being on Monday through Friday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., all produced by African-American kids who Preston trained. Now, 
only Will Lewis <laughs> would have allowed that to happen because, I mean, it was a major part of the schedule. I was on until six and then the drum came on. So that was Will. So I went into Will one morning and I said, you know, Will, what we really need now, we need a program on Saturday morning with two hosts. They're both going to be a little wacky. In fact, I'm going to be one of them, if you'll let me. And the subject, and we're going to take calls from listeners. And the subject is going to be high fidelity audio components, because Boston was a center of high fidelity with Bose and acoustic research and the whole rest of them. And um, he looked <laughs> a little funny. Um, and we were going to do it on Saturday morning. And he said, well, what the hell, give it a, what do you want to call it? I didn't know what to call it. I got the name of uh, Richard Calhoun. So well, why don't you call it Shop Talk? Well, that sounded good to me. So we did it. And we went on the air and I, I, I picked a guy who was an audiophile, but a little wacky. And we had a lot of fun and we joked and we laughed and we took calls and we answered questions about your woofers and your tweeters and your this and your that. And we had guests and that was Shop Talk. And it lasted, uh, I, I didn't last long. I, I left for California, I became a hippie. But the show lasted for 10 consecutive years. Wow. Yeah, uh, so it was pretty successful. And then one day the program director at the time said, you know, this, I mean, it wasn't that unique a format. It was a call-in program with two hosts. And he said, well, let's, let's try, you know, this works. People really love us. Let's try a different topic. And so he sent postcards out to car mechanics. Oh my gosh. In Boston. One guy answered the call and he comes into the station. His name was Ray and he did the show and did it live. And I guess they liked him because he was just leaving. He said, Hey Ray, why don't you come back next week? He said, I will. Do you mind if I bring my brother? He's a mechanic too. <laughs> I think I know where we're headed. <laughs> and that's how it started. So more power to them. They were, they, were, they were wonderful, highly creative. Both of them graduated from MIT, Tom and Ray. They were very bright guys. We had a garage in Cambridge. That my and you, mother were, you, you, were, you were kind of the, uh, the instigator for the creation of the very popular program, Car Talk. Right. So I had a little role in that. In fact, I remember once I was at a radio conference years, years later and Tom and Ray, they were surrounded by people and people want to get their autograph. And I very, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm a kind of a shy person. I, I just very meekly went up and said, I introduced, and there were clowns. They left the clown around. Yeah. So I said, I, I just wanted to say hello. I'm Steve Robinson. Steve Robinson. They got down on their hands and knees. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't blame them, Steve. You're there. You were responsible for their success. But I was very flattered that they remembered. That's fantastic. And then Tell us a little bit about going up to Vermont and the uh, the Sky Report, uh, Vermont Public Radio. Um, I saw an ad for, uh, they were looking for a development director of Vermont Public Radio. The network hadn't even started. Um, and I answered and I got the job as a fundraiser, as a development director, because I had done a lot of fundraising on WBUR. I did the, I, I produced the first pledge drive in New England on radio, on the radio, the first one ever. So I think they liked me because of that. And so I became the development director. I also had a, show, a classic music show and um, I was pretty successful at creating pledge drives. I, I, I still have done a lot of them. I've, I've produced <laughs> over a hundred pledge drives. Somebody has to do it. Yeah. So I, I was pretty creative with that. And then um, I've always been interested in astronomy. Astronomy. And, and cosmology. There's something about the universe and all the big, the vastness of the universe that has fascinated me. Now, I don't pretend to really know anybody. I've read a lot of books, which I don't understand, but I still like to read about it. So we got a letter from a guy at Dartmouth. He, he was a professor. 
And he wrote a letter because I was there a year before we signed on the year. I was the Johnny Appleseed of, of public radio in Vermont. I traveled all over the state. Uh, I loved it. I, I used to have my fishing rod in the back seat and I would go off on a dirt road. And I'd come to him if I had any time to kill, I'd go fishing. So um, we ended up with just under 1,000 members before we went on the air. And that turned out to be a record at the time in, in public radio. But we got a letter from this guy, Professor Dello Mook. What? And he said, Mook, M-O-O-K. Okay, Dello Mook. Okay. Dello Mook, D-E-L-O. And he said, oh, I love this concept. I love classical music. Here's my pledge. And he had a check in there. And he signed it, Dello Mook, astrophysicist. I said, wow, he's an astrophysicist. So I went up to see him. And he turned out to be this very crazy guy, and, 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 but very articulate about all these topics, redshift and, and nebulae, and you name it, he knew all about it. He was an astrophysicist. I said, Professor Mook, why don't we do a show? We'll do a, show, a daily show. Maybe you can write some scripts. He writes these fantastic scripts that he sent to me. I couldn't believe it because he was able to explain these concepts that anybody can understand. So he comes to the station, and I was going to be the host of it because I have such a great voice, you know, very, very, very good. I was going to be the host. Of course. At the last second, I said, Professor, you have an interesting voice. Why don't you try it? He said, what do you mean? I, I've never even been in a radio. I said, go ahead and try it. So he turns out to have this delivery. I nearly fell off my chair. He just had something. Uh, it was a natural gift that he had for delivering the script, which he wrote. So we put the show together, ended up being Monday through Friday for about seven minutes a day. We syndicated all over the country. And it was the first, what we call a modular program in public radio, a short daily program. And I won my first award for it from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting. But Professor Mook uh, was really the whole show. And I just, as I like to do, was in the background. And I was so glad I, that I didn't have the e big enough ego to be the voice. You try it. And he turned out to be a genius narrator. Fantastic. And it was called the Sky Report, right? Yes. His son, by the way, went on to run uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, but that's another matter entirely. His, her, his last name was Mook. I forgot his first name. Okay. Yeah. Well, now, then there was another one called Radio Free Rashan. Rasan. Yes. Well, that didn't have anything to do with the Vermont Public Radio, but I, in, I, I didn't know much about jazz growing up. I didn't like it or dislike it. I just didn't interest me. And somebody invited me down to the jazz workshop to meet um, or, or to hear a guy by the name of Roland Kirk. I had vaguely heard the name. So I go down to the jazz workshop in Boston on Boston Street, it's long gone. And I, I hear this musician who I, I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. Um, he seemed to have the whole history of jazz wrapped up in, in his instruments. His sets were, he would start with New Orleans and he would, then at the end of his set, he'd be way out Albert Eiler land and, 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 and just avant-garde as you could be and everything in between. He played the flute, the clarinet, the tennis saxophone. And then what he would do, he would put three saxophones in his mouth at once and play them not as a gimmick, but because he could play harmony with himself. And he would finger them in different ways. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. And then he had a thing called circular breathing, which is a technique of keeping the breath continually going. And he would do this on three instruments. So somebody took me backstage to meet him. And because a person who invited me knew him a little bit. And I introduced myself and he said, oh, Steve, it's good to meet you. What do you do? I said, oh, I'm in radio. Radio? 
doing radio? To make a long story short, his dream was to host his own radio program. I said, well, I don't know what I can do, Mr. Kirk. I, I can't put you on the air at WCRB. It's, it's all classical, but I can do anything you want to do in the studio. So to make a long story short, the next night at, at 1 a.m., we're up at the station, and he had a concept where he was going to, and by the way, he's, he's uh, without sight. He, he was blinded when he was two. Oh, my gosh. So he had a concept, he said, where he was going to invite you on his train. He said, but you have a train record, a train sounds. I said, yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, a steam engine. And, and his concept was he was going to be the conductor of, on a train. And this train would go everywhere. The train would go to New Orleans. The train would go to Paris, France. Very unusual train. <laughs> and along the way, he would play all this music. And a couple of years later, we got a grant from his record label. And we produced a series called Radio Free Rassan. He added the name Rassan to his name, R-A-H. S-A-A-N, Rossan, Roland Kirk. He added the name just shortly after I met him. I remember calling him out. I said, Roland, it's Steve. It's Rossan. Excuse me? Uh, Rossan. <laughs> I'm Rossan, Roland Kirk. It came, came to him in a dream. He, he dreamt that he was playing and the crowd was chanting Rossan, Rossan. Dreams meant a lot to him. And so I said, okay, Rossan. And, and we did eight shows um, called Radio Free Rossan. And before I had a chance to syndicate him, I still get emotional. Rasan passed away um, in 1977. And so I produced eight little half hour programs to introduce each show called Memories of Rasan. And I produced these eight half hours because everybody loved him. And so that's Radio Free Rasan. We syndicated that all over the country. Oh, my golly. And now, was that related to or is this something different when you ventured into the jazz area of WBGO? In, uh, was that New Jersey? Yes, in Newark. Newark, okay. So I, I went from living on 75 acres, a rented cabin, big, huge log cabin in Vermont, to going to Newark. Well, that's quite a change. That's well, people change. thought I was a little crazy, but I had met a guy by the name of Bob Ottenhoff at a conference in 1978. He was said, I'm starting a new station in Newark. It's a jazz station. Now, but this time, because of Rasan, I, I really love jazz. Rasan introduced me to jazz and made me a real lover. And, and this got my attention because I knew that New York was the jazz capital of the world. He had a transmitter on top of the Prudential Center in Newark, um, which reached all of Northern New Jersey and all of all the five bars of New York. And this intrigued me. We stayed in touch and he ended up hiring me as development director. So, so you, you, you went from classical and that sort of thing to jazz. Yes, yes. Oh and um, I, I couldn't resist it because of, because of where it was. It was in the jazz capital of the world. And um, I got there just after he signed on, and nobody ever heard of WBGO because the one station in town was WRVR in New York, the Riverside Church, and there was a very well-known, beautiful jazz station, and they were it. And then one day we got a call from a friend of ours at RVR at 10 a.m. in the morning, and she said, uh, well, <clears throat> they've sold the station. Uh, it's going to switch to country at noon. <laughs> they're bringing they're bringing in the country library. They're taking out the jazz library, and at noon you're going to hear this. W, you're going to hear goodbye pork pie hat with Charlie Mingus, and at noon the announcer will say, "This is WRVR New York. Here comes country with Waylon Jennings." <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a change. We had an emergency meeting. Now we're in our twenties, kids at WBGO. What what are we going to do? I mean, this is something. We're, we're the only jazz station left. So we had all these meetings, and of course we came up with nothing, and. As we were leaving the meeting, somebody said, hey, maybe tonight we should go on all night because we signed off at midnight. Maybe we should go 24 hours. Okay, we'll do that. 
Well, somehow all the TV stations in New York picked up on that. And we were featured on all the all the New York, big New York, you know, news stations. Little station in Newark goes all night in response to the loss of WRVR. And we were off like a rocket. Oh, my golly. Now, during all this time, you know, you're assembling all this experience and so forth. And then something came along that uh, that you uh, you were instrumental in founding. It was called the Association of Independence in Radio. Now, what was that about? Well, uh, we called it AIR, yeah, Association of Independence in yeah, Radio. Yeah. Um, I wasn't an independent radio producer because I was at a station, but I had a lot of friends who were independent radio producers and they were always getting the raw end of the deal. They got no respect, you know, as Rodney, Rodney Daniel called it. They got no respect from, from NPR or, or from anybody and they were paid poorly and they didn't know they had no health. So we decided, uh, a guy by the name of Lou John Sante and uh, a lady whose name I'll remember in a minute, we all got together at Lou's suggestion and what are we going to do? So he said, well, you know, let's form a service organization. Let's represent the independent radio producers. And that was in 19, must have been around 1983, 1984. And so we formed it. We got a 501c3. I wrote the first two grants. One was to the New York State Council on the Arts. One was to the National Endowment for the Arts. And we got funded and we hired an executive director. And we began to lobby on behalf of independent radio producers. And it's, that was in, what did I say, 83, 84. And it's still around. And it now has something like 2,500 members and independent radio producers are now a thing. I mean, they're taken seriously and they get respect. And so I was very happy to be associated with that. It's still around. That's fantastic. That's fantastic, Steve. So now you're this guy who started in Boston, did some things in Vermont, did some things in Newark, classical music, and jazz and that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden you go out to the Cornhusker state of Nebraska. Okay, right. come on, Steve. Tell me about that. The Nebraska Adventure, Nebraska Public Radio. Well, I, I, I guess I have a penchant for change because I went from <laughs> by the you know, I went from the rural Vermont to Newark. Uh, after I left WBGO, I went and I moved, I was living in Midtown Manhattan. And from there, I go to Lincoln, Nebraska, because <laughs> <laughs> a Jewish kid in Nebraska. So what happened was up to that point, which is 1990, I had done quite a bit on radio. I had produced, I had created programs, I had raised a lot of money. I had a lot of skills, but I had never managed. So I see this ad in our industry trade, looking for a manager of a new statewide public radio network in Nebraska. <laughs> and I vaguely knew where Nebraska was. I knew it was someplace in the middle. Uh, and I knew it had a kind of square shape with a thing at the end, the handle. And, yeah. I, and I knew the capital was Omaha. So I said, well, the I, capital I, is Lincoln, my friend. The capital. Well, I knew it was Omaha, but I was wrong. Hey, you got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, I said, what the hell? I'll, they're never going to hire some Jewish guy from, who's never managed a station. So to make a long story short, <laughs> I got the job. So we moved in February of 90. My wife is pregnant with our one and only. And so my daughter was a Cornhusker and I took the job and it was, I, I had a whole year to my boss who became my really the only mentor outside of Rasan that I've had, Jack McBride had, had started um, Nebraska educational television. It was the fourth television network in the United States, PBS network. And he put transmitted in all over the state, nine transmits, a big state it takes seven hours. To, no, no. Yeah. It takes about 
I think seven hours to drive from one end of the state to the other. Maybe not that long, but a long haul. And so he had all these transmitters and he said, gee, what about radio? And he already had the transmitters. So he got licenses. And my first job was to do all the sign-on. We, we, we have this sign-on gimmick that we did at the nine locations. We drove out and, and Jack being, being have a theatrical flair. He had this big um, railroad switch. We set up on a table with a big red ribbon around it and we would throw the switch. Well, the switch wasn't connected to anything, but, but we would time so, <laughs> so that the, the station would start broadcasting. And so I did all those sign-ons and um, I got to know, I traveled all over the state constantly and I got to know all the, Jack set up these so-called team leaders in each location, Gordon and Grand Island, which is not Grand or an island, um, uh, Norfolk, all these communities, Kearney. Scott's Bluff? Uh, we didn't have a transmitter in Scott's Bluff, but I was out there. Oh, okay. So uh, we built this network and we, we actually reached, I mean, the population of, of, of Nebraska is 1.2 million, but then we reached um, something like 900,000 of those people because we didn't, wow. we, didn't, we didn't have a transmitter in Omaha. Wow. That's a long story. So that was a lot of fun. And I, my, my wife and I said, we'll stay here four years. That'll be about enough. Um, and uh, we stayed 10 years, two months, three weeks and four hours. And, 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 and I learned a lot. I mean, cause it was my first job as manager and I did a lot. I did a lot of fundraising and my daughter was born there. She went to school, went to a little Montessori school starting at the age of 18 months. And as people never failed to tell me it was a great place to raise a child. And it was, it's a, it's a good community and being Jewish um, in, in Lincoln was also an experience. Maybe we won't go into it here, but I had never experienced anti-Semitism before because I, you know, I, I lived in Berkeley, I lived in Brookline, I lived in Boston, I lived in New York. Nebraska was a different story, but uh, I could tell you some stories about that. But okay, that, that, but that, that, you're, there's this Jewish guy from Boston who has all this experience and so forth in public radio and that sort of stuff. Before we move on to the next thing, just kind of tell me, look back and tell me what were the, you know, this is a, this is a program about critical skills. And it sounds to me like you were really, really good in the communication skills and the technology skill. You knew, you knew how to communicate to the public what you wanted to do, and you knew how to do it through public radio. So what were some of the most important skills that you needed through your journey, through those years, up to the point where you just about where you were ready to leave Lincoln, Nebraska and move on in your life? Well, the, the two basic skills I had before getting to, to Lincoln were the experience of fundraising. And I, I developed techniques of on-air fundraising that were pretty unusual. Um, and so I knew how to produce a pledge drive. Boy, I want to get in touch with you because we have a couple of drives that we want to do, not tease and steal. Yeah. Actually, my last two, uh, jump ahead for one second, my last two drives that I produced at WFMT in Chicago, each raised over a million dollars. Oh, my God. Uh, so we were pretty successful. So I knew how to fundraise. Um, I knew how to produce. And I had a penchant for coming up with ideas, some of them wacky, some of them that actually work like, like shop talk. And so I brought those skills to Nebraska, but I had never managed. And so this was, uh, I had to learn to manage people and to you know, handle complaints and handle problems and handle personnel issues and conflicts. And I learned there that the one way to get the respect of people that you're managing is to work harder than them. 
they could see that I would roll up my sleeve. I wasn't some executive who was going to be off in a, in a, in a room somewhere and, and make decisions from on high. I got down in, into the weeds with them and I worked as hard as them. And I might have had all these crazy ideas, but they knew I was a hard worker. I mean, to give you one maybe insignificant example, we'd have a meeting and somebody had to put away the chairs. Well, I'd go in and put away the chairs and sweep <laughs> up. You know, and they could see that I was really in there with them and I wasn't aloof uh, at all. And so, the, and, and so they were able to put up with some of the crazy ideas. So for example, I, I had an idea. I said, you know, I think we should do a call, uh, a show kind of modeled on, on Shop Talk, Car Talk. But instead of cars and instead of, let's do it on marriage. Hmm. And they looked at me. Steve, um, you know, you're a nice guy but you really don't get Nebraska yet. You know, you haven't lived here long enough to realize we don't talk about things like that in public. So forget it. I said, well, no, let's try it. (laughs) So I I found a couple at University of Nebraska Lincoln professors. They were marriage counselors and professors and married. Well, what could be better than that? So I put them on the air and we called it um, uh, for better or worse. We, we couldn't handle the calls. We couldn't, ha- we didn't have enough phone lines to handle the calls that came in. Turns out the people in Nebraska did like to talk about their, their personal lives because we never identified anybody and we kept their identities private, but that worked. And, but, but I had built up some, so when the staff told me to forget it and I said, no, let's try it. I had built up some trust and they said, well, let's let them try it. You know, it'll fail, let them try it. And I think it was because they respected me for the work ethic that I had. And that's one primary lesson that I learned about managing is work harder than anybody else. You did. And you certainly did that. So here's this guy from New York. No, from Boston, who's had this experience in Boston and Vermont and New Jersey and the corn husker, husker state of Nebraska. And then all of a sudden something happens where you get a call or something where they want to bring you to Chicago to this station called WFMT, which, by the way, is 98.7 on your dial. And uh, tell us, tell us what, how that happened and tell us a little bit of, about your time at WFMT in Chicago and what you found when you arrived and a picture of the station when you left, when you retired in 2016. Well, it's interesting how I got on the radar of the general of this president and CEO, Dan Schmidt. So I'm sitting there in Lincoln and I would always have big arguments with people in public radio about how to program classical music. And I had different ideas than most everybody else. And we'd have these battles, civil, but we'd still fight with each other. We'd write articles in our trade journal about how to program the music. And I thought that the way they programmed that was very boring. And so to prove my point, I said, uh, you know, there's a bunch of rules you guys follow. You won't admit it, but you follow a bunch of rules. And so I studied the playlists of four or five stations at random. I remember this is around 1989. And I noticed that they were all playing music by a composer by the name of Ignatz Asmeyer. I thought, Ignatz Asmeyer? Who the hell is Ignatz Asmeyer? Well, he's an obscure German composer, contemporary of Beethoven, who was a mediocre, lousy composer, but these stations needed mediocre, lousy music to fill out their playlists. And I found two other composers, one by the name of Anton Fugger and a guy by the name of 
uh, uh, Gottfried Finger. I thought, what is this? I mean, who are these composers? So, so I wrote an article, I, I wrote a, a long essay and it was online and it was a, went out to a list of 1500 people. And I, I, it was a tongue in cheek thing saying, you know, I've recently been studying the station's playlist and I came across the music of Asmeyer. By the way, it's pronounced Osmeyer, but I pronounce it Asmeyer. And I said, it's a revelation to me. I've listened to this man's music. It's, it's just, it's stunning. And a matter of fact, next week at Nebraska Public Radio, we're changing our format to all Asmeyer all the time. And, and these other composers, Finger and Fugger, mind blowing. So I said, let's have a festival. We'll call it the Asmeyer Finger Fugger Festival of music. And it's totally tongue in cheek, you know, and, and it was a little bit out there and it was a little bit insulting to these stations. And I'm sitting there with my finger posed on the computer, poised. Should I send this, this sort of sarcastic finger fugger, Asmeyer memo? And I pondered for about five minutes. Ah, oh, what the hell? So I hit <laughs> then, I swear to you, not three minutes later, the phone rings. Wow. And, and it's Dan Schmidt, the president of WTTW. And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> he said, Steve, that's the funniest article that I have read in a long time. That was tremendous. By the way, I'm looking for a manager. Would you come up for an interview? <laughs> oh my golly, Steve. What a what an opportunity. So I owe it to Ignate Asmeyer. Oh, and by the way, um, I said that uh, in that article, I said we were having a conference the next month, a big national radio conference. I said, uh, come and see me because I'm having buttons printed up, which I did, <laughs> that said, um, I'm behind Asmeyer. And um, that was another sarcastic. And, and I actually printed up the buttons and people, you know, I handed them out to people. I'm behind Asmeyer. Wow. And then you, you, uh, you went from Cornhusker State, Lincoln, Nebraska, which, by the way, I love into a major market, the Chicago market with a blue chip uh, station, w, WFMT. And then all of a sudden, Steve Robinson is the guy for WFMT. So, you know, you, 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 you stayed there for the next 16 years or so. Yeah, I have to tell you, I was quite intimidated too. I mean, well, I, couldn't, I'm sure. I, I couldn't believe it because as much as I you know, uh, we, we like we like Nebraska. I was getting pretty itchy, and I'm really not a rural type of guy. Not that Lincoln is rural, but you know, the state's kind of rural. Uh, and so when this opportunity came, I just uh, grabbed it so fast, you didn't even know it hit you. But it didn't mean that I I, I was intimidated because WFMT was, as you say, a blue chip station. It was about 18 months away from celebrating its 50th anniversary, and it was and is one of the greatest classical music stations in the country. And so what the hell am I going to do there? And I, I realized years later that when you take over any company that's a legacy company that's been around in that case 50 years, there's, one of, there's only one of three things you can do. You can ruin it. You can maintain the status quo, which in the case of FMT wouldn't have been so bad because it was so great. Or you can push it even further than it already was. And I'd like to think that once I got my feet in the ground, I was able to do that, to add to it, to make it an even better station than it already was. And I hopefully people would, would agree that I was able to do that. And I did that by taking a year to really get to know the area, get to know the people, get to know the music institutions, get to 
try to try to get the, the 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 confidence of the staff that maybe I knew what I was doing, even though I mean they couldn't believe somebody from Nebraska, you know, got the job. Nebraska. <laughs> um, and so I think I was able to win over the confidence of the staff slowly but surely. And it was after uh, that that I started to come up with ideas. And I, I didn't want to impose any ideas on anybody uh, so fresh out of the barrel. I, want, I wanted to get my feet in the ground. And I was able to, I, I figured that the best way to do that would be to see what I can do to improve the fundraisers. Because that wasn't treading on anybody's classical music toes. It's yeah. a very, very tender toes there at FMT with classical music. Don't, don't, don't fool around too much with what we do with classical music. All right, let me try the play drive. And I was very successful. Um, actually, when I got there, if I remember the, the numbers right, we had 17,000 members. Now, FMT had only recently become a member-supported station in 1997, which was a, it was a commercial station. It still is commercial, but uh, Dan Schmidt decided to add, for certain reasons, member support. Well, within about 36 months, I had the 17,000 up to 25,000 members. And that was really a tremendous increase. When you go from 17, let's call it 23,000. So it was an increase of 6,000 members. Wow. Well, at an, at an average pledge of $100, you do the math, that's actually $600,000 new money every year. Yep. So that was a pretty good, uh, nobody complained about that. <laughs> that's for sure. And you, and you, you really, uh... You really were visionary on some of the programming you did there because you did things from, uh, you know, the legendary Studs Terkel in Chicago, and and you went outside the Chicago area. You know, you you did live broadcasts from around the world, and you created a bridge uh, between uh, China and the West in terms of classical. You did you did some innovative things, Steve. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I got to FMT, FMT had something called the radio WFMT in Chicago, but it also had something called the WFMT Fine Arts Network. And that was started by Ray Nordstrand, who was a legend in Chicago radio uh, and not just classical radio. He, he was amazing. Um, he was a graduate of Northwestern. He had a degree in economics and he became kind of the, uh, the general manager, but also the sales manager. He was a genius at sales. Um, the program director was uh, um, Norman Pellegrini, the late Norman Pellegrini, they're both gone now. And Norman was the program director. And so Ray had a genius for fundraising. And um, to give you one story, I mean, we had a little program guide that Ray started, a little pamphlet, really all it was, it was nothing really. And over the years, Ray, Ray transformed that into Chicago Magazine. I mean, Ray was the editor-in-chief of Chicago Magazine, which was the most successful city magazine in the United States. I had one issue, which I kept on my desk, that was 400 pages. And everybody knows Chicago Magazine. It was 200 pages of ads. Okay. It was actually Chicago Magazine kind of, kind of kept uh, WFMP afloat because no one really cared how much money FMT made because the magazine was raking it in. And, but that was Ray. <laughs> Um, but he also had this fine arts network, which produced and syndicated programs around the country. Um, but about a year, and it was run by a certain person. And about a year into it, my boss said, would you take a look at it, Steve? It's not doing so well. It's losing money. So I took a look at it and I said, yes, using, <laughs> it's losing quite a bit of money. So he asked me to take it over and we, we let the guy go who was running it. And I had a chance to take it over and I changed the name to the WFMT radio network. And I was able to come up with a lot of programming that, that no one would thought was possible. And we, we were quite successful. The first program was called Exploring Music. 
And that's still on the air. I created that in 2003 um, with a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, $150,000 grant, by the way, which was almost unheard of for a radio grant from the NEA. And that was matched by the Zell Foundation. And that show was Monday through Friday, one hour a night. And I picked the host. I thought up the, the name Exploring Music. Uh, Bill McLaughlin is the host. I corralled him and did the fundraising and it's still on the air, 2003. It's almost, how many years is that, Charlie? It's almost about 18 years old and, and it's still going. And so I was able to create that for the network. And then I did a live broadcast from Salzburg. I was determined years, years ago that somehow I was gonna be in Salzburg for Mozart's 250th birthday. And you did it. And you I did made it. it. I, yes, I pulled together the, the New York Times station WQXR, XM Radio, which hadn't merged yet with Sirius, and I raised them and I got a $65,000 grant from this wonderful gentleman in, in Chicago. And we went over and broadcast live from Salzburg on Mozart's birthday all over the United States. Wow. Uh, yeah. What people still remember about that broadcast wasn't the music, but we were, <laughs> we were broadcasting from the, the mu music, not the music of Ryan, uh, the, the Festival House, the Festival House and big concert, Vienna Philharmonic, Ricardo Muti, who ended up in Chicago, um, Thomas Hammond, wonderful concert. But at intermission, they timed the intermission so it would be at 9 p.m. Because Mozart's father wrote a letter to a friend. He said, well, my kid is just born today at 9 p.m. So they timed it so that at precisely 9 p.m., everybody comes out of the Fresh Bill House and all the churches in Salzburg ring their bells. Oh, my golly. And it just... And we broadcast it live for seven minutes, uninterrupted minutes of just bells from Salzburg. And people still talk about that. And, and everybody asked me, how'd you ever engineer that? You know, a hundred churches. I said, well, <clears throat> we, we were at a building down the street and we hung one mic out one window and we hung another mic out another window, crossed our fingers and it, it, it really was a great <laughs> seven minutes of radio. It, it happened, it happened, it happened. Yeah. Wow, I'll tell you, you had a marvelous experience at WFMT and, you know, over the years and we we in Chicago certainly thank you for for what you created and we still enjoy as a matter of fact that's the only FM station that I even uh, tune into here in where I live uh, when when uh, when I want to have something peaceful and uh, I, I, I really enjoy it but you know then you left and you retired in 2016 and was there anything that uh, F WFMT that you wish you would have done, but you didn't do, what would that be? And, and you know, what, what lesson did you learn from that? One major thing. Um, when you have as many ideas, when, when, the, when the CEO has a lot of ideas, it's the staff's responsibility to talk him or her out of the really nutty ones. I mean, the ones that are almost guaranteed to fail. Now, uh, and I would listen to the staff for a lot of the times. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. Probably not a good idea. But I had one idea, which I've now come to call um, a TIP, thematically integrated programming. I said, you know what? The way the music is programmed at the station doesn't make any sense. It's willy-nilly. It's a little bit of Brahms and it's a little bit of Mozart. And then we go to this and we, it's not tied together. We need to integrate it. And it wasn't that the staff talked me out of it because we tried to do it, but they just, I couldn't, I failed to impose that idea on the staff. Cause I'm not a guy who imposes things. Yeah. 
I, I did a lot of things, but I didn't impose. And I could see that, that they just didn't want to do it. And my, 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 my regret is that I, that I didn't push hard enough to make that happen because it's an idea whose time is eventually going to come because these classical music stations around the country, I mean, FMT is probably the best of them all. Oh, I but, agree with that. I agree with that. It's fantastic. I mean, to this day, there's there's no station that's really quite that just has the legacy and the and, but now that with the onslaught of digital media and streaming and with the music coming from everywhere in the direction, I really feel that the programming has to change uh, as an industry to be more integrated thematically. Just leave it at that. So that there are themes running all throughout the day and through an hour and through the week, and I just couldn't push it. Now, now that I'm consulting with stations, I'm, I, I, I have a name for it, TIP, Thematically Integrated Programming, and I'm trying to push this idea. I think it's the only way to break loose from the Siriuses and the, the, the Spotify's and the this and the that that's inundating us with. I mean, it, it's, a good, it, it's a good environment for classical music radio now because it, it, it's so accessible to everybody. But I think they, and I wish I had... Uh, and I, I learned from that that if you feel passionately about an idea and you're, you're convinced, as I was, that it would work, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Oh, Do yeah. It. But you, uh, you, accomplished so much, you accomplished so much there, Steve. And, and uh, we in Chicago benefit every day from what you created there. Now, okay, so it's 2016. And Steve Robinson leaves from uh, WFMT and goes uh, to uh, to Boston. You leave. You go back back home, and you you start a thing called New Media Productions. I mean, tell us about that. Its purpose and how it keeps you busy these days. And I understand you've got some things to share with us. Well, when I left FMT, it was never with the thought of retiring because that word is not in my vocabulary. I I couldn't do it. I would. I don't want to say it, but if I had to really retire and do nothing. Let's just say I would go crazy, if not shoot myself. So I never intended to retire. And I built this company to do podcasting, which I've done quite a bit of for other people. Uh, as you know, Kendall Alimo and that podcast we did, yep. we did with Kendall. I did some others. And I learned, believe it or not, in all my years in broadcasting, I never learned how to actually edit the, the, the digitally, digital audio editing. I didn't know how to do it. And I learned I, as soon as I left FMP, I, I, I won't say I mastered it, but I learned through a, a program called Adobe Audition how to mix and edit programming. So I created a program. Uh, there was a guy in Chicago um, by the name of Lawrence Rapchak. His, his dad actually was on the radio for quite a bit, Mike Rapchak. And Larry is a conductor of the Northbrook Symphony. He's given close to 500 pre Chicago Symphony Orchestra lectures, is how I met him. And I approached them with an idea of what we call the architects of music. And the idea was to show people how music is, is put together, into what form. Harmony, melody, and rhythm, yes, but what, what's the architecture? What's the overall form? And Larry loved that concept. And we've raised quite a bit of money to do these programs called the architects of music. And um, so that's one, one series that I've been very heavily involved with the last two or three years. And Larry, Larry is a genius at this. And uh, I put together a little clip from one of the programs for you. Um, it's on Beethoven's fifth. L Larry's a genius. I mean, Larry is as good at, at this as I think Leonard Bernstein was at ex explaining uh, music. And um, this is a little clip from the show. If you want to, you want to roll with this? 
You want me to roll it? Okay, Beethoven from Beethoven's fifth. It is terse, it is compact. Its dynamic energy is concentrated into a mere nine and a half minutes of music, the shortest opening movement of Beethoven's nine symphonies. And it's all the more stunning because of the bold, unprecedented way in which it begins. <laughs> known to practically every living being on earth. It's that powerful. Recently, the theory has been floated that Beethoven was inspired by a post-revolutionary work by Luigi Cherubini, who was part of that big public oratory movement in Paris, his hymn au Pantheon of 1794. And this type of work, as we've seen, definitely influenced Beethoven's heroic style. The passage in question in Cherubini's work is very brief. The men's chorus quickly exchanges a similar four-note motive sung to the words, nous jurons tout les faire en main. We all swear with sword in hand. And here it is. Oops, I think we ran out of... Uh out of that clip but yeah because right, right right after that ended it goes into it was the same thing it was the same thing that beethoven that you know the 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 what was called the fake motive or whatever yeah, well is the way he was, it's, it's quite stunning so that's larry and larry larry is a genius at at, at uh, explaining how music works so, uh, you're, I, you're, so you you were in the front you were in the business of basically telling people how music works and, and explaining a little bit of this sort, this sort of thing. Yeah, I should add, by the way, that uh, about three months ago, somebody contacted me, a woman who runs a streaming company in uh, Vienna, Virginia. And she said, you know, I've heard your, your audio program. They're just fantastic, blah, blah, blah. But I think they'd be better if you added images. Oh. I said, images. And so very, I'm a polite guy. And I said very politely, well, you know, actually, I've been doing these programs without images for 50 years. Things have worked out okay. And so she persisted. And she said, send me 10 minutes from one of your programs and I'll, I'll add images and show you what I mean. Make a long story short, in, about, in a few weeks, we're debuting this program, which you just heard a clip of, with images. They made a movie out of it. And it's going on a site called um, iClassical.academy.com. I'll, I'll tell you about it when it debuts. But we've added images, and I think she's right, and it works. So we'll oh, see how that we'll see how that goes. And you did the same thing in the world of jazz and and other other kinds of things. Well, I was fortunate two or three years ago to meet a very wonderful gentleman by the name of Kent Savage, and Kent um, is a very very successful businessman um, in his own right. I mean, he has a company called Apex Technology, and it has to do with uh, helping businesses. Um, uh, serve customers in, in certain unique ways. Very, very successful. But he also loves music and he built a website called um, asavagecontent.com and he commissioned me to produce um, a 13-part series on, on the life and music of Billie Holiday. And I've always loved Billie's music, uh, but I never knew much about her. I knew, I knew the basic outline of her life, but none of the details and I, I love the music. And I hired, and he said, would you do this? I said, yeah, but I'm, I can't write the script. It's got to be a black guy has to write the script or a woman. And so we hired uh, a guy by the name of um, uh, Jenkins, Willard Jenkins, very well-known jazz writer. He writes the scripts. Uh, he selects the music. We interviewed almost 20 people, including the late Phil Schaap, who died just on, on September 7th. 
um, and we've assembled into these programs. And I, I put together a little clip for you of the opening of one of the shows. Should we uh, hear that? Should we hear that? Uh, yeah. Okay, here we go. That's something, Steve. Those clips, that was Cassandra Wilson, uh, the guy who says, put it in your pipe and smoke it. That was uh, Joe Jones, who was Count Basie's very famous uh, drummer. So we were able to get our hands on some archival interviews. And then um, a woman with the name Professor uh, Griffin. Phil Schapp uh, was the fourth voice. He talked about Louis. And Phil passed away on September 7th a great loss to the community. And then um, a same lady, Renee Marie. So we interviewed 20 people. I edited all the interviews. Willard did all the um, interviews. I edited them and mixed it. And it's going to be a 13 part series. I'm very proud of that. Well, now, now Steve, uh, this is what you're doing now with new media productions, right? Right. So how can someone uh, find it, find you and uh, support you and what you're doing? Because you're, you're really giving them, uh, you know, some thought behind just the sound of the music, but what it's all about, What's, you know, how, how, can, how can people support you? Well, uh, we're a for-profit company. Uh, the money for the architects and music comes from foundations, so it goes to a, a nonprofit organization that handles the money for me. Um, I, I mean, my email address is, if anybody wants it, is steve 
at newmediaproduct.com. Steve and, uh, at Steve at newmediaproduct.com. Yeah, no S on product. Couldn't get the whole name of it in there. And I have, I, and uh, that's the best way to reach me. And um, if anybody wants to know when these programs are going to be heard, the the Architects of Music um, is available uh, on a site called teachable.com. It's architects.teachable.com. And the movie will be out in about three weeks. And I'll, I'll let you know when that is, Charlie. Maybe you can. Fantastic. And, and Steve, I want, to, I want to tell you how, how uh, what a pleasure it's been to, uh, to have a, a fellow music lover, you know, talk about how, uh, he, how he can use the critical skills through communications and technology and that sort of thing to, to communicate uh, the passion that uh, all these artists in the past were trying to to uh, get in touch with to the public in general. You've, been a, you've done a great job with that in, when you were in Boston, Vermont, Newark, Nebraska, and Chicago, and now uh, with your new media productions. Well done, my friend, well done. Thank you, Charlie. And uh, so I wanna thank you so much, Steve, for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. Uh, and now as for me, I'm an internationally certified coach. I used to play the trumpet too, by the way. <laughs> and I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com, or if you're interested in positive intelligence, podcastpq.com. So I wanna thank you all for listening today and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.